that of course was Madonna singing Like a Virgin and I've chosen that particular song because it has a bit of a connection with today's show not necessarily the song but the actual video from that clip which was mainly shot in Venice so I recently got the opportunity to spend a couple of days in Venice it was pretty amazing and I got to eat some great food and then I've come back and I've started reading the Donna Leon novels and they're, they're mystery novels they're set in Venice the main characters called Brunetti which is of course the name of my favorite pastry shop in Melbourne and I've just got me thinking all about Venetian food and I, I did taste the very best pasta I've ever had in my life when I was actually out over on the mainland from Venice. So fortunately I have a friend who has Venetian background. My guest today is Rosie Costa. Rosie is a local educator and she's been in Alice Springs for about a year and we're going to talk about the food of Veneto, Sardinia and also what happens when People from Venice or from various regions of Italy in particular, what happens when they leave their, their country of origin, what happens to that, that food? I mean, this could be applied to any migrant groups, but today we're going to apply it to the, the food of Veneto and maybe Sardinia. Welcome, Rosie Costa. Thank you, Rita. Oh, that sounds a lot better. Now I can hear myself. That's so good, isn't it? It's good when you can hear yourself. Or maybe not always. Not always for me. Rosie, how do you describe yourself? Do you describe yourself as Italian, Italo-Australian, of Italian descent? How would you describe yourself? Yeah, that's a really tricky one. I think in the past I've I probably said that I was Australian, absolutely Australian, but I'm more Australian with Italian descent. But, you know, we tried to lose the Italianness when we first were here, uh, growing up as recently arrived migrants, even though we were born here. My parents were recently arrived migrants. So, you know, there was a lot of stigma attached to that. So, yeah, now I'm proudly say that I've got Italian heritage. Yeah, it wasn't always that way, was it? No, it wasn't. No. It wasn't. And, you know, growing up, very, very different to a lot of the other kids. I mean, it was obvious that I was different. The food that I had at school, you know, the fact that my siblings didn't speak any English going to school. So they knew we were the new wogs in the in the burbs, you know. So that was, that was always a bit hard, yeah. What was in your lunch? In my lunch was always... So we had a, a baker, a local Italian baker, Tony Facin, who would come and bring the split Vienna loaves and the pasta dura. So we would have big sandwiches <laughs> with um, salami and cheese, usually, you know. Um, occasionally, when there was no meat towards the end of the week and we were needing to get to the big market... We'd have jam in our big, in our big sandwiches that were wrapped in, you know, wax paper like everybody mm. else's. Just the shape was very different. <laughs> very different. I mean, I of course have an Australian mother, so for me, you know, I I, I say now I'm of uh, Italian lineage, just mm -hmm. so I can clarify that. I don't come from, you know, I don't have both parents who are from Italy. In fact, my father's, like you, my father's actually born here and it's my um, Italian grandparents on my father's side that were, were born here. You know, when I went to Italy, the first time I went to Italy, I was really confronted with the fact that I wasn't Italian, even though I'd been called a wog my whole life. I was like, I'm very Australian. I'm Australian. How did you feel when you first went to Italy? Exactly the same thing. I thought, my Italian is so inadequate, you know. It was just this awful feeling of, I really don't belong here. And, you know, and it's funny, when my father first, my mum and dad first went back to Italy, they felt 
for the however many years they'd been here, 56, and then they went some, you know, 20 years later. So they sort of felt that they didn't belong here, but when they went back to Italy, they didn't belong there either. They had started using a lot of Italian English words, which was really bizarre. So they'd be saying things like, you know, andiamo in caro, you know, instead of macchina. So instead of going in... in and, you know, and they're saying, what? Where are we going? What with? So they said it was really, really difficult because they've, you know, the language had morphed yeah. into something different. Yeah. And what about the food? Had the food morphed into something different as well? I think the food was probably similar, but what was really interesting for, the, for them was that Italy had moved on and even though they had come to Australia and they'd really held tight to their, held on to those traditions and being traditional Italians, the rest of the world had actually moved on and were you know, far more progressive. So I think that was a real shock for them. Yeah, look, I can remember meeting my father's cousin, Rosa, the first time. And, yeah, she was born in Italy and she lived in a in an apartment in New Farm in Brisbane. And she served a meal with a primo piatti and then a secondo. And I'd never eaten Italian food like that. And I can always remember she served papale with a Napolitana sauce. I'd never eaten pasta without a, a meat sauce. And mm. she did strike me at the time as being a lot more sophisticated than my, you know, Italo-Australian father or even any of my relatives. So it, it is interesting what happens to the migrants in Australia, how they then compare, particularly with food, I think it's interesting, to like their families who they've, they've left behind. When my father went to Piemont the first time he ever went there, people in the village commented on what beautiful dialect he spoke and he actually spoke better Piemontese than the locals <laughs> and they all came to have a listen to him. Well... Unfortunately, my parents' Italian really <laughs> suffered from living here. And, you know, it's just going to happen, I think. I think the language changes. I think the food changes as well, just given what you've got access to here in Australia. So there was a lot of things that my parents probably didn't have access to. Poverty was a big factor in what we ate. And we just went and got whatever we could. Like, we did a lot of foraging for food, which was... It was just part of growing up and I knew it was weird so I didn't tell my friends <laughs> what we did but it was just part of, of our lives and we just would all get into this 1964 Volkswagen Beetle. There were four children, the two parents. I usually had the parcel shelf right at the back and we would just fill up the boot with all sorts of things ranging from horse manure... <laughs> to carciofi selvatici, which is uh, wild artichokes. And then whenever we were down at the beach, we'd be foraging for mussels and anything we could lay our hands on. So and Maybe some baby pigeons as maybe well? Maybe some baby pigeons. <laughs> that was my brother's job, so I'm not going to lay any claim to that one. Where would you find wild artichokes in Melbourne? With the artichokes, we would end up going out to... It was the back of Broadmeadows somewhere before Broadmeadows was a suburb. So it was still probably people's paddocks and lands. And that's also where we got the, the horse poo from. And just these sacks full of foods and, you know, things to fertilise l'orto, the garden. Yeah. So, yeah, and we grew up with an enormous garden out the back. And... There's this really beautiful photo of me as a child, you know, posing. It's a black and white photo. And when you first look at it, because my mother was a keen photographer, when you first look at it, you sort of think, oh, that's cute. That's a really beautiful photograph, you know, in a beautiful 
floral garden. No, no, it was all of the endive and the chicory and the tomatoes and the grapevines, which was, you know, still quite beautiful, but very, very different. So your mother was from Sardinia, Mm -hmm. is that right? And where in Sardinia? Mum was from a place called Quarto Senelena, which is in Cagliari, which is the south of Sardinia. And she really missed the beach. She missed the water. It was, you know, even though we still went down to Port Melbourne, I think it was probably a very different experience going down to Port Melbourne than it was to go to the beaches of Sardinia, which are just idyllic, really beautiful. Better than Australian beaches? Well, better than Port Melbourne. Yes, of course. You don't have to be really good to be better than Port Melbourne beaches. But, but look, probably not better than Australian beaches. I mean, I think we've got some really spectacular coastlines. So, But we didn't travel very far. You know, when we ended the lockdown, my father had passed away by this stage, when we ended lockdown and we were allowed to go further than five kilometres in Melbourne... I turned into my father and I thought, what for? You don't need to go any further than five kilometres. I've got everything I need here in Preston. It's fine. Well, it know. was Preston, you're Preston as well. So, yes. yes, it's not like you're in, I don't know, Brighton or somewhere like that. And That's exactly right. Yeah. We need a bit of culture. Yeah. <laughs> and your father came from the region of Veneto mm-hmm. and where in particular? Dad was from a place called Tiene in Vicenza, which was a manufacturing town. So both my parents were from towns. They weren't from villages. He was a motor mechanic by trade, so he was a skilled labourer, as was my mother. She was a hairdresser. And the two of them came out because Italy was in recession again. And they just ended up using those skills to get themselves employed, although my mother ended up just being a labourer. But Dad... You know, his father was a a postman, but there wasn't a lot of talk. My father was also a prisoner of war, so that was a a really difficult time for him, and I think that that really impacted him and and how he raised his children, really, yeah. So given that your mother was from Sardinia and your father's from Veneto, what was the cooking like in the household? Was it all Italian and was it a combination of the cuisine of those two regions? That's a really interesting question because, you know, was it all Italian? I think so. It's really hard to know because, as you know, you're influenced by what's available. So you sort of make do with what you've got. Predominantly it was Italian, though I didn't think at the time that it was, oh, this is Italian food. I think I knew that we were eating Italian food, for example, when mum was cooking pasta and making pasta, or when we had ravioli or when we had polenta. I knew that they weren't part of the Australian cuisine. So... I knew that elements of it were, but, you know, we also had lamb chops and chips and, you know, greens and vegetables. So that was very much a part of what everybody was eating. So it was probably cooked very differently. But, yeah, I I think it was Italian and certainly influenced by the Italian. Lots of olive oil. Lots of olive oil. Tell me about your Sunday roast. The Sunday roast, we lived in Northcote and we would... Before we headed off to Mass, because we were good Catholics, Mum would get the chicken ready. And it was just a chicken roast that she would have with lots of potatoes. And by the time we got back from church, which was out at Hawthorne, probably, I don't know, eight kilometres away, seven, maybe ten, um, we'd drive all this way to Hawthorne because uh, that was where her father, her favourite priest was, Padre Luciano. And it was just one of those things. We would come home via the Yarra boulevard stop off have a bit of a play in our in all our finery and by the time we got home 
the, the chicken roast was ready to eat and we'd all sit down and have the roast and, of course, Dad got to choose what he got to eat. We usually got, you know, a chicken wing. <laughs> but there was never anything left over. One chicken, six people. And what did you do for greens? Were there peas with uh, butter? No. there was. No, although we did sometimes have peas, but that was cooked very differently. They weren't peas with butter. It was like silver beet or whatever was abundant in the garden. And silver beet was always... So the silver beet was boiled to within an inch of its life, but then fancied up, tricked up a little bit on a Sunday with perhaps some fried up onion to sweeten it and maybe a bit of pancetta thrown in if we had any. So, oh, that's nice. You know, so I'll do that now, not with the pancetta, but I'll certainly do it, but I won't boil it. I'll just wilt it down mm. and it's just like a spinach, which is really delicious. Which is sort of really that, that some of those changes that happen mm. as, as cooking. Cooking has progressed, I suppose, in Australia for people to be a lot more aware of, of, of how to retain the nutrients, the macronutrients. And look, and I think that's changed in Italy as well. Yeah. I'd like to think it has. I'm sure it has. Were you aware in, say, the, the menu of your family household what food was, um, say, from Veneto and what was Sardinian dishes? I always knew that the ravioli di ricotta was um, Sardinian. I just knew that that mm-hmm. was the case because this was something that my aunt would come over and we would enjoy. So my aunt, my mum's my sister. I always knew that the quails and polenta was Veneto. I always knew bacala and polenta was also Veneto. But the other foods, I think, was this melding of cultures. And and my mother never used a cookbook. You know, Dad would say, this is how my mother used to make it. Mum would go, righto, okay, let's make it. And it was, you know, okay, but my dad was also a very good cook. So he was also able to cook for us. He tells the story that when I was born, I was the, the last child born, my mother had a very difficult labour with me and I was in a humidity crib for a long period of time afterwards and my mother and I needed to have a little rest in the hospital so they sent us off to a hospice somewhere. So during that time my father had to cook for the other three children. He used to say, you think I can't cook? I can cook. I had to cook for three children. I cooked for myself. I was a single man for a long time. I know how to cook. And then of course my mother died uh, when she was 65 and my father lived you know, another 30 years after that and cooked for himself, lived independently for most of that time and, you know, always had the broad door on the go and, yeah, cooked, you know, really substantial meals for himself. So both of them were really good cooks. Mm. Can you tell me about the brodo? Brodo was the staple and... You know, Pete Evans would be so proud. It was, um, you know, bone broth effectively, but it was very simple. My sister and I were charged with making that during the week if we ran out, and it was just a boiling hen, a boiling chicken, a boiler, a piece of osso which was never fancy, and you would get it for a song at the butcher's. That was just in a pot with water, and it was just a large stock pot that mum had, half a bottle of our homemade passata and a couple of carrots and some parsley. And that was it. And then it boiled away and the house smelt. You knew that brodo was being made. And then that was often frozen or kept in the fridge and, you know, portioned out and so on. And Dad would have his brodo every day. So it was turned into a little soup. So he would have that before a meal. And we all did, and it would it would have like little pastina, like stelline, or some rice in it, just to bulk it out a bit. And it was just something that we did. And I think, 
you know, he probably or we probably did it because it was like a, I don't know, um, a digestive or it was something mm. to get you ready to eat, you know. So it was a bizarre thing. I don't do it now and I don't make broth. And I'm thinking, should I? And I think, oh, yeah, I think you should. Do you think I should? Yeah, when it, when I'm cooking risotto a lot or minestrone, mm. yeah, I will always make stock and then I'll actually freeze some because I've got an aversion for, for bought stock. How do you make yours? Uh, I will go and get uh, chicken frames from Milner yep. Meats, always the free-range chicken frames, mm. and I'll just boil them up with celery, carrots, onion, garlic. Depending on what I'm using it for, sometimes I might put a uh, puccini mushroom in there or if I know I'm going to be making a risotto with mushrooms. But often I'll put puccini mushrooms. Just I put some in a borscht the other day because I didn't have any stock and I just knew puccini mushrooms just give this heartiness yeah, yeah. and this flavour yeah. that the only other thing that gives it is meat often. So mm. I really love puccini mushrooms. So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm a bit of a fanatic about having a homemade stock. In fact, if I don't have any homemade meat-based stock, I will then make up a vegetable stock. And I've been making some really good vegetable stocks with all the same ingredients, mm. but always puccini mushrooms. And you don't, I don't miss the meat always. See, what's interesting, we never used onion. Mm-hmm. Never. And it was like no onion, yeah, no onion in the brodo. So that's mm. it's interesting. And I, I always used to think, mm, why, you know, yeah. it could just be a regional difference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who taught you to cook? Did both of your parents teach you to cook? Yeah, I reckon they did. And it wasn't really that I was taught to cook. I just hung out in the kitchen and really took an interest in cooking. It was something that I really liked to do. Oftentimes I'd be kicked out of the kitchen just because I liked to touch and, you know, lick the bowls and taste everything. So that was always, you know, get out, get out, get out. So, but there was, it was always watching mum when dad was, you know, on his last legs am I allowed to say that <laughs> yeah, you can say it. You can. <laughs> just don't swear please but that's uh, all right <laughs> all right I think I already have no, um, I don't when, think you have okay when when dad was um on his way out um I told him that he had to teach me how to make gnocchi although I knew instinctively I don't know why but I kind of knew how to make gnocchi he was the one who could you know, spin them off the fork at a rapid rate. And, I am so impressed. And I cannot do that. Yeah, and he just said to me, it's easy, it's in the flick of the wrist and it would give the beautiful indentations on the top and, the you know, the thumbprint on the bottom to catch all the beautiful, you know, sugo. So his uh, bakala is another one that that's interesting and I'm thinking I, I really need to try making it because I didn't mind it. I know that others in my family hated it. But I didn't mind it. There was an enormous amount of parsley, which I love. Mum's wasn't as oily as Dad's. Dad's was almost a confit. So it was, whereas Mum's was more of a, a stew, I guess. You know, not not so oily. But so I suppose for listeners, we should explain what oh bakula is because it, it is listed as one of the, the the four main ingredients of food in in Veneto, which is like bakula, I think rice, polenta, and beans. You can't get bakula here, but you want to describe. What it is? Bacala is salted dried cod. That's right. Yeah, and it's quite pungent and it takes an enormous amount of preparation before you can cook it. So you need to have it soaking in water. You can also soak it in milk, but I think that's for different recipes. So that was for, they turn it into like a paste to have on bread. Whereas uh, the bacala that we had, it was only ever, we only ever had it soaked in water and you change the water every 
you know, a couple of times a day and you'll soak it for two to three days just to get all of that salt out of it. And it depends on what you want to do with it. So ours was always changed over for three days. There's two types of buckler you can buy. You can buy the ones that actually look like the fish and they're crazy looking long cods and then you can also just buy smaller pieces. Smaller fillets. No, we, we used to have the, the ones that were... Big, ugly ones. <laughs> big, ugly ones. And they stunk, you know, to high yeah, heaven. Yeah. You just sort of, oh, God, it must be Easter. <laughs> I've tried them in Melbourne and I don't think I succeeded very much at all. It, well, it's one of those things that's really... I'm frightened to try it, but I think I've got to take my mum's sage advice here and just be prepared to muck up and and just throw it out if you don't like it. Maybe I should try it. It's because maybe you should bring it back and put it in your, your luggage. It might be one of those <laughs> things that's worthwhile bringing back from Melbourne when you go on holidays at the end of the maybe year. Maybe I can. Ooh. Oh, yes, you can. It's just a matter of whether or not it's going to stink out the rest of your um The rest luggage. of my luggage. You know, if the dog finds it, she might have a little gnaw at it while we're travelling in the car. She'd probably, she's probably quite partial to it. Yeah, you know, I once had um, tripe sausages in my luggage and my luggage got lost. <laughs> <laughs> it taught me a very good lesson. Oh, how did that go? Oh, uh, yeah, Did you get yeah, your luggage? I got my luggage. I didn't oh. eat them. Um, but can I just ask back to the brodo? Because your brodo also had a tomato sugo mm. through it. So mm. that's that's what makes it very, very different to, say, a stock that I might make as well when describing it before. Yeah, and I don't know why that was. I think it was just for the colour more than anything because otherwise it's just a clear broth, yep. you know. And mm. and some people really love a clear broth. But we always grew up with, a you know, I guess a dirty broth and it didn't matter I thought it was really quite tasty but it was the base to our minestrone as well Mm -hmm. so and it was used in everything you were talking before about peas so our peas were fresh out of the garden they would be fried up with pancetta and onion as well fried up and then they would be covered with stock and then that would be reduced down and that was a delicious um, pea dish that would be a side sometimes it, you know, in pea season, it would be a side dish to the roast chicken, yeah. which was really lovely, yeah. How often were you eating out of your garden um, when you were growing Every up? Every day. Every day. So we had a beautiful herb garden. We had lots of parsley. We had plum trees. My father was a keen gardener. I think that that was just his therapy and his mindfulness. And he would... He had one tree where he had grafted onto it prunes, apricots and and plums. So he had three different types of fruit on the one tree. So he just loved mucking around and doing stuff in the garden. We had lots of lemon trees. We had grapes, all the vegetables you could imagine. And we ate out of the garden every day, every day. And I can remember one story, and I didn't have a garden for a very long time, and a friend of mine reminded me, this one night I was often left to water the garden. He said, you stand here, don't move, keep watering that garden, I'm going in to have dinner. So he went in to have dinner and forgot about me. And I was out there watering the garden. I was just a child and really frightened because it was dark and everybody had gone to bed and they'd left me out there watering. And then he came out and he was so cross with me because I was basically standing in a lake. And he was really, really cross. And I thought, well, you were the one that left me out here. It just wasn't. But this friend of mine said to me, why don't you have a garden? You'd be really good at it. And I said, oh, 
you know, I just just that whole garden thing. She said, nobody will leave you out watering <laughs> in in the dark. You need to you need to start a garden, and I did, and it was a beautiful thing to do. Um, Melbourne's got such great weather, really, for vegetable gardens as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, our winters, there's lots of water. You know, getting getting things ready in spring, it's always a really it's a joy. Do you have a vegetable patch here? No, because I'm renting a place, and the soil is so uh, just would just need too much work so I'm thinking I might get just some tubs and just grow some herbs at the very least yeah I mean I I find wicking beds I do well with wicking beds but that that's it I won't try anything else but but wicking beds yeah yeah yeah. and I just think I, I don't know how long I'll be here and I think it's a lot of investment to time you know it's a lot of time and I'm busy, Rita. <laughs> Come on, Rosie. I don't think there's always enough time for a, for a vegetable patch. Oh, maybe just a small one. Did your family make their own um, posada or sugo every year? Yes, every year. And there was, you know, jobs. We all had our jobs. So the posada was made with the tomatoes from our garden, but that, that was also supplemented with some bought tomatoes because we often didn't have enough at the end of the season, always at the end of the season. My job was to score the tomatoes and dip them in boiling water to skin them. I think no, that was a different. That was something because you different. would normally have them skinned actually in the um, puree machine. Yeah, and then you'd end up with the the skin and the seeds coming out at the end. Yeah, and then I had to uh, wash the beer bottles out. So that was another one of my jobs. You know, just with some. I'm pretty sure it was lead pallets, you know, just making sure there was nothing left. So we were probably poisoned as children, just in everything that was that was cooked. But that happened every year. My father would then set up an enormous bonfire in the 44-gallon drum. It was filled with water. The bottles were put in there and, you know, it was this this really scary time because sometimes the bottles would explode. <laughs> And that was never nice for anybody, you know. It was just scary and you'd go, oh, there goes another bottle. But, you know, and then we would keep them. We'd make an enormous amount and it would last us all year and we would keep them under the house. So we had... It wasn't a very high place. It was, you know, it was maybe a metre high and we'd have to crawl in to lay down the Passata bottles and that's where they were kept, in a cool place and, you know, sometimes you'd get sent under the house to go and get the conserva, the passata. Conserva. Conserva. Conserva is what we called it, but it's passata, yeah. And just back to the gnocchi, you were describing the gnocchi that your father made and you would have, like, passata with that Mm -hmm. as a sauce? Yep. Just straight out of the bottle or would it be heated or...? Yeah, absolutely. It would be turned into, so it would be, there would be the, the onions, the you know, the frying down of the onions till they're gorgeous and and sweet, Um, some garlic in with that as well. And then uh, often there was some meat, so there'd often be like a sugo. But I, in fact, most of the times the gnocchi would have like a a, a meat sauce Mm -hmm. with them, but there wasn't a lot of meat, but it was enough to flavour the... um, Like a pancetta or more of a a small good as opposed to... No, sometimes mm. it was actually like a beef. A beef, okay. But it was, we never called it ragu, um, mm. and that's that like a fairly new thing to me. Yeah. It was always just a meat sauce that was la salsa, you know. It was just the sauce that you had with it. And the, the gnocchi that your father made, 
was it was it standard ingredients like um, potato, was, flour, eggs? There was never an egg. It was only potato and flour. You had to steam the potatoes whole and they had to sit there to dry because you don't want to put very much flour in because once you've got too much flour in that, they're sort of chewy and doughy and a bit yuck. Well, they kind of turn into pasta, yeah, don't they? Yeah. yeah, so it's about trying to keep as much potato as possible. Were there any particular potatoes your father might use for gnocchi? Look, I think there were. I never, I never knew what they were. They were never brushed or washed potatoes. They were always, you know, potatoes that you needed to, to clean. And he just knew what to look for in a potato. I still don't. And that, that really bothers me. I know there are brands of potato, like types of potato you can get, but I've never been able to, to source them. No, I've never been able to say, look, this is a good you know, potato mm. for gnocchi. Maybe because I don't cook gnocchi enough mm. and because I'm not familiar you know, with... I mean, I know maybe a King Edward and maybe some of the others. All I know is that... It, Old potatoes are good for gnocchi. Yes, old potatoes are good for gnocchi, not new potatoes. And he just knew. And and that was the case with mum as well. You'd be at the market and she'd just be selecting produce and I'd think, how do you know? How do you know this stuff? But you don't know. That's what's kind of interesting. I mean, I'm interested to know how much of, say, your parents' cooking you've absorbed. Like, how often would you yourself cook gnocchi? Rarely. So I would cook gnocchi if one of my kids requested it and I don't live with them, so it's not often. And one of my daughters doesn't like them, so she just finds them a bit... She doesn't like the texture of them. So it's just when people want gnocchi and, like you, I love cooking for people, so maybe I'll have to have a crack at making some gnocchi for you. Yeah, I would never cook gnocchi just for myself either. It would always be a special occasion. And Mm. I cooked it for a friend a couple of years ago. I think one of my sisters makes better gnocchi than I do and I and I, I always will test my gnocchi because I'm never I do use eggs in it mm. I'm never quite sure until it boils that it's going to hold together so mm. Mm. that particular sauce was you know onion garlic tomato and bacon or pancetta okay. and peas yeah yeah ah, and tomato okay. yeah yeah it's a really yummy well, sounds sauce. delicious yeah it's great and and we always put the gnocchi in the oven as well afterwards layer it with some nice melted brown butter so and then some cheese on the top took it over to a friend's place and there was maybe her neighbor's son there anyhow the the mother of the the child who was there saw me somewhere and she said to me oh you know my son was you know talking about how wonderful that gnocchi was he made the other day can you give me the recipe no (laughs) and I said to her no I'm sorry she gave me this absolutely shocked look and I said I can show him how to cook gnocchi, yeah, yeah. but I, I cannot give a recipe because I have no idea what... Quantities. Well, even the potatoes. Like you mm. really, It's only really when you... I actually bake my potatoes now and I always ah. use a potato ricer. Yes. And I've actually discovered if you put potatoes or, say, sweet potato in, you know, what some people call a Dutch oven or a cast iron pot with a lid, and you put that in your oven rather than alfoil, Mm-hmm. It actually then just cooks all in its own juices and then you let that cool and then you strain that. So you're not adding anything, obviously not adding mm. water, but it also mm. means 
that you don't get any crust on the outside very much. So that's been my, my latest. Do you keep your potatoes whole? If I'm baking them like that, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Do you? Yeah. yeah. And, and the ricer. It's curious. I brought the ricer with me yeah. to Alice Springs. I think it makes a massive <laughs> difference because you get a consistency with your yeah. dough. And I don't use the smallest holes. I use about the middle hole mm. on the ricer. Mm. But I actually probably wouldn't make gnocchi now without a ricer. Yeah. Like I haven't made them for a long time. But just thinking about all of the food, I'm thinking, yeah, maybe maybe I need to make some of these things. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So what else, particularly if we could just like, focus I suppose on the food of, of Veneto what else do you as an adult or have you as an adult or is part of say your I don't know what you would call it but for, it's almost like a lexicon of, mm, of, of, of ingredients cooking, yeah. of, of sorry of, of meals that you cook mm. like I've got I don't experiment I don't bring new foods that often into what I cook but I've got quite a, a extensive sort of list of foods that I cook and I cook well mm. and you know once again it's it's that whole thing of cooking for others so I do still occasionally make polenta and I know that that's that was from Veneto from the Veneto region mm-hmm. dad you know loved his polenta so I've sort of bastardized the recipe I don't I do what I want to do with it I don't And what's what do you want to do with polenta With polenta I want to you know, have it set on the plate. So you do a, a soft polenta? Well, it's harder, really, it's so that it sets quite firmly. Chop it up into, you know, so it's almost like polenta chips. Fry those off and then, like you were saying earlier with the gnocchi, I'll layer it with some sauce and cheese and do it in the oven. And it's a meal and mm-hmm. it's delicious. So it's about, I think, being exposed to some of those those elements of Italian cooking and then changing it up, mm. mixing it up a bit. What was some of the advice that your mother gave you <laughs> in the kitchen? My mum, she was great. And as I said, she never had a cookbook. So she always just had, I think, a good palate. And she said, find a good recipe. Make sure that you experiment. Don't be frightened of any ingredients. Try everything and be prepared to throw some stuff out. It's okay. It's only food. And, you know, when when you've got something that you do well, keep doing it. And once you know how to do something well, that's when you experiment with it. That's yeah. when you change things up a bit. And, and tasting? How important oh, was tasting? Tasting and, you know, looking at things. So it was everything was done a occhio, so there was no measuring of anything. So everything was you just look at it, feel it, touch it, taste it. Does it need anything? Is it too loose? Does it need more binding? What does it need? So, yeah, tasting and and touching was always really important, especially for pasta as well, you know. So that whole making the dough, that was really important. Yeah, it is very important, I think, when making homemade dough. The feel of it is so important to know when you've got that, I suppose, that ratio of eggs to flour, right? Mm. And again, mm. it depends. Like, I find recipes almost impossible to follow for pasta because... The flour, particularly in Australia, mm-hmm. can can vary a great deal in terms of the the moisture content of yeah. it. Yeah, and that's the same with the gnocchi, isn't it? Yeah, you know? and, and and polenta. Like mm. I read somewhere that Australian polenta, you don't need to cook it anywhere near as long as say Italian polenta, that it is a lot softer. That you know, there's actually machines that stir the polenta <laughs> for you on the stove. Like you attach it to your saucepan and it's. Oh, that'd it. be nice, wouldn't it? You don't need to stir no. it that much. No. Yeah. Not here. But I remember mum used to stir it for ages, so maybe she was buying Italian polenta. Yeah, I haven't found any major advantage in stirring it for a long time, as opposed to like a risotto, which which does have to be stirred. See, I 
I disagree. I don't think <laughs> you have to stir it that much. I think we overstir risotto and I think often the rice will do the work itself. I don't I don't stir it a lot, but I know you do need to move you it around. You do need to move it around to yeah. actually get that yeah, starch absolutely. in the sauce. I don't sit there and stir it constantly. I agree with you. I don't think it needs to be stirred constantly, no. but you need to stir it initially and to then release the starch. And yeah. then you need to stir it so every time you add your stock Ooh. and yeah. yeah, because risotto is, I, I suppose, a major dish of the Veneto region as well. And yeah. and I read it was the not not the arborio rice, but the nano. Sorry, Violone nano rice. Yeah, I don't know about that one. Yeah, you can get that can and the canaroli. I've seen it that in one, Woolworths yeah. here, and yeah. I'll often buy some if if I'm you know interstate. They're slightly bigger grains. Okay, that's about the difference, well, and they do taste better. I have to say. Okay, I believe. See, I don't think my mum ever used any fancy rice. For I think she just used a medium grain rice, and you know we would have rizi e bizi, which is I love that dish <laughs> so much. <laughs> so you know, which is just rice and peas, and it's like a, a, a risotto, yeah, and just simple. Yeah, and that's that's the thing. I think sometimes we think that Italian food is so complex. It's not. It's, it's, in fact, it's the simpler it's, the better yes, often. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think we forget that. And don't try and trick it up. Just Yeah, just just be aware of your flavours yeah. and the cooking properties. Could you give me your recipe for Rizia Bisi? For Rizia Bisi? Yeah. Right now? It would be good to share. My nonna cooked something similar, but she always had tomato in hers. Oh. And when it was served, always in northern Italy, I don't know why, that the risotto is always served on a plate, flat. And often with cheese on the top, and then you just take yours. Oh, we certainly didn't have bowls, you know, bowls of it. We had plates. We just, yeah, we had plates. plates. Yeah. So the Rizzi and Busy was the same. It was, but the peas would be cooked with the onion and the garlic. So you still, so you're frying yep. off onion and garlic yep. in in butter or olive oil. Both, because butter's for the flavour, olive oil, so the butter doesn't burn. That was what my mum always said. Wow, that's she, great. Because yeah. I would almost always use, I, I pretty much use olive oil. And then I only add the butter at the end. But I think olive oil and butter together, you're right. Delicious. Butter is for the flavour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the olive oil so it doesn't So it doesn't burn. burn. I'm just trying to think. There was always parsley at the end and it was just this delightful concoction of peas and you know, all would, the would starches. You, would you follow the steps? So would you add the rice? You add the, stir rice, the rice, stir the rice through. White wine? My mum didn't really use wine in hers, yeah, but I always use wine in I mine. I do too, but yeah. occasionally, like recently, I think when I got back from overseas and I got COVID and I was making risotto at home and mm. I, I couldn't go out. It was on a Monday or a Tuesday. I couldn't get wine. I was like, oh, look, it's okay. I, I did notice a little bit of a difference, but really, you know, if you don't have it, you can still make it. Yeah. I was working with a Muslim woman last year and um, I said to her, I'll bring lunch tomorrow. I'm making risotto. Mm. And she said... No wine, it's haram. And I said, okay. So, oh, even, and even though it's though, cooked even off. Even though it's cooked off. And I said to her, you know it's cooked off. Mm. I said, there's no alcohol left. She said, no, no oh, wine. That's interesting. And I said, yeah. okay. So I made it and it was mm. fine. But, yeah, so so it's the toasting the the rice and then adding the brodo. When are you adding – are you adding pancetta with this or it's just peas That one, the, rice? The, 
that's just the peas and the rice. Mm. So the pancetta was the other one, was the just the peas with no rice yeah. in it. Um, any of the recipe books, I've got the Italian got recipe books, they've always it. got pancetta in it. Which would be it delicious. Yeah. I love pancetta. I yeah. wish I could get a really good pancetta here. Yeah, in fact, you can't get it here at the moment. I went to buy some pancetta the other day and I, there was none. Yeah, I mean, unless it's pre-sliced, but as if. Yeah. No. No. So that's that's something I'm really missing because I use pancetta in my bolognese as well and I use it as a base for a lot. It's just tastier than bacon. It's got that saltiness mm. and that sweetness to it and all that delicious fat. Yeah, the fat's <laughs> very important. Yeah. yeah. So, and you know, and the rice is never overcooked. You know, it's got to be al dente like your pasta. Mm-hmm. Um, so the rice, yep. the rice is never overcooked and then serve it up. I wouldn't make it like my mum made it. I would add the peas later. Yeah. Whereas everything, you know, every green vegetable was a shade of brown. <laughs> and would you add butter and parmigiana Absolutely. at the end? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Really Or would important. you ever add any other cheeses other than parmigiana? Would you consider pecorino or...? Yeah, a pecorino would be lovely. Mm-hmm. But it's not often I have a pecorino in the house. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll just have grana padano or mm-hmm. um, a parmigiano reggiano. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, grate that over the top. You know, mix it through but then have you know, clouds of it on top as mm. well. And a bit of butter when you're eating it as well? Not butter when I'm eating it, but certainly butter as when you put the lid on it yeah. to let it sit. Yeah. yeah. Stir that through, put the lid on, let it sit. Yum. <laughs> I'm going to have to go and make this tonight. Would you ever consider using the pea pods in the brodo to give an extra bit of flavour? Oh, I say this, interesting. Yeah, only because I've seen recipes for like pea risotto where that's what they've done oh yeah see there's the little things you can yeah. add you know you can yeah. experiment with have you tried it uh, i have tried that one yeah does it give it too much pea no, taste it's good it's good in fact the recipe was they actually ended up making almost like a pesto out of the pea pods and putting that in the end oh. and i don't think that would work but certainly putting the pea pods actually in your stock to give that extra flavour. Mm. I'm always looking at how I can create extra flavour in the stock because I think the question of whether or not you make a successful or a tasty risotto, I think is all in the stock. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's the seasonings. You know, get your seasonings right. Because too often, you know, if things are bland and you've just got to whack a heap of salt on it just to get some yeah. flavour out of it. It sort of misses the point. So, yeah, seasoning's really important. Mum seasoned everything. And I'm still really partial to salt, so I really like a lot of salt on my food. Yeah, me um, too. Yeah. So I don't think she over-seasoned. I think she was actually pretty good. Now, when I was in Venice, I saw this radicchio that I've never seen before, and I've actually put it up on my um, Instagram and Facebook post for today and it was red like radicchio is but it kind of had tendrils coming off it mm. and I actually bought some and because I was only there for a few days I didn't get a chance to cook it. Do you know what I'm talking about when I talk about this radicchio? I do know the, the radicchio t- you're talking about. We never ever had it here. We had the longer radicchio, we grew it but it didn't have the tendrils. But we grew up eating radicchio and, you know, you were saying you didn't cook it. We never cooked it. Yeah, I've never actually cooked it because I don't understand its cooking properties. Yeah. So people have told me you can put it in a risotto or something. I don't – I've never tasted it cooked and I don't know what would happen if you cooked it either. Yeah, I don't know what would happen either. I, I've only ever had it as, you know, um, a salad. And when I say a salad – 
that's it, just, just the radicchio. And as you know, it's really bitter. But once it's dressed with olive oil, a bit of vinegar and, you know, lots of salt, it's beautiful. And it, it actually takes on a sweetness, which is bizarre to say, yeah. I know. But it's, uh, yeah. It can. It yeah. can, yeah. We're going to have to start wrapping up soon. But before we do, I always like to ask my guests to give me a recipe. And Ooh. could you talk to me about peperonata? Peperonata. Peperonata. My, I'm, I'm doing Duolingo at the moment. And I'm trying to get my Italian pronunciation it's better. It's those feminine masculine. I uh, find the feminine masculine to be so hard in yeah. a way that it's not that hard in, in French. In French, I seem to be able to pick it quite, you know, successfully. But I, I'm just really struggling. So it's it's feminine or masculine? Feminine. So it's peperonata. Peperonata, yep. And so you, this is something you grew up eating? It's something that I grew up eating and it's something that I still cook. So this is one of the things That's that I great. still cook and I love it. And I was looking in the uh, the crisper that um, this afternoon and I thought, oh, I've got a couple of red peppers in there. I'm going to make some peperonata. And I've also got an eggplant, but we'll talk about that shortly. So with peperonata, it's really a, a capsicum stew that is cooked the recipes that you'll see say that 20 minutes is enough, but I don't think it is. I think if you want the real sweetness of the capsicum, you've got to cook it for longer. So it's basically, once again, an onion sliced. I just use a yellow or a, a you know brown onion or a white onion. I don't tend to use a purple onion for peperonata, but it doesn't really matter. Finely sliced uh, with garlic. And once again, there are no quantities here, as you know. Um, it depends on how many capsicums you've got. So for my two capsicums, and they're quite large ones, I will use one onion and a couple of cloves of garlic and I will sweat those down until they're nice and soft. With olive oil? Olive oil, yeah. So very, very low heat? Very low heat, So and, and for a long time. I'll then add really finely sliced uh, capsicum. You don't... Uh, some people will peel the capsicum. I don't bother. Um, I'm quite happy to, to eat the skin. Um, so really finely sliced and just fry those down as well until they're nice Red and soft. Red or green capsicum or yellow? Red or yellow, but not green. The green's got a bitterness to it. And I find I don't often have a green capsicum <laughs> in my crisper. I don't know about you, Rita. I do, actually. I do put you? a piece of green capsicum in my, if I'm making a Napolitano, ah. and I put it in. And I pull it out at the end. And that, that's another story. I'll, we probably don't have the time to okay. take. No, no, let's, let's finish the peperonata. Right, so once the, the capsicum has sweated down and it's quite soft as well, you then add some passata. How much? I don't know. Half a cup? A cup? But I also, because I like to cook it that little bit longer, I'll also add some stock to that mm -hmm. just so that it's a bit soupy. Like everything, I don't like... Stuff that's too dry, so I like it quite soupy, and I'm really generous with the oil as well at the beginning. Extra virgin? No, if you've got it. No, no. Okay. no I don't cook with extra virgin. Mm -hmm. I just use extra virgin on salads. salads. Yeah. Uh, once you've you've cooked that down, as I said, recipes will say 20 minutes. I'll often, you know, cook it on a low heat for 40 minutes or so. Job done, and it's just delicious. Sorry, and at towards the end some um, vinegar and that gives it what do they call it agrodolce so there, there's that sweet and sour yeah yeah and sugar if your passata is too acidic and what sort of vinegar oh 
Obviously white not wine, a balsamic. White wine because, vinegar. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, not just your standard vinegar. I'd use a white wine vinegar. It's actually very hard to get a good white wine vinegar yeah. here in yep. Alice Springs. Yep. So, you know, and that was, that was the recipe that my mum cooked. I love it as a side dish to fish, to steak, to chops, to anything. And it is just delightful. And if you've got a, a, um, an eggplant, you chop up your eggplant and you put that in when you're sweating down the uh, capsicum. So when you're frying off the capsicum, you fry off the eggplant as well. And with the capsicum? With the capsicum. And, you know, make sure that that gets nicely coloured and quite soft before you put in your passata and then cook that off and then towards the end of that add a handful of olives and then you've got caponata, which is delicious. And we never had that on pasta. We never had it as an addition to a pasta sauce. It was only ever just a um, a side Mm. and delicious with fish. Wow, it sounds so lovely. Yeah. Um, And I should point out, like, you can actually get seconds as capsicums at, at Woolworths. I don't know mm-hmm. about Coles. And they're actually quite a good price. And they're beautiful and red and they're all funny shapes, but, mm-hmm. gee, they taste great. So you don't have to pay that stupid money as yeah, well. Yeah, that's for, exactly right. For capsicum. Thank you, Rosie Costa. It's been so fabulous talking about Italian food and particularly the food of Veneto and Sardinia today. Uh, what are you cooking this weekend? This weekend I'm going to try to uh, source a recipe because, of course, this is my auntie's recipe and there was never a recipe. So I'm going to try and source a recipe for some biscuits called brutti ma buoni, and that means ugly but good. Um, And they're sort of a meringue-based biscuit that are quite crunchy. They're made with hazelnuts, egg whites, some flour... And I'm pretty sure she used some chocolate. So that's what I'm making. Oh. What about you? I want to make these Pimontes hazelnut cakes. So they're like ground hazelnut with like lots of eggs, like eight eggs and sugar. And so you almost make them, I suppose, in little cupcake tins and then just a um, a glaze of chocolate and uh, cream. Yum. And it was one of those things that's on the front cover of one of my these beautiful little gourmet traveller Italian cookbooks I've got. And I promised myself when I went off my calorie counting diet that I would make them for myself. So I'm maybe going to be cooking those tonight. We'll see. Oh, yum. I'll put in an order for one. They sound delicious. Thank you so much, Rosie. My my guest today is Rosie Costa. You've been listening to Kitchen Radio. I found an Italian singer called Patti Prava. I like this song. It's called Pensiero Stupendo. And I just want to say thanks, Rita, for the trip down memory lane. Oh, it's been it's wonderful been having you here, Rosie. I think I'm going to have to go and also cook a risotto tonight because <sighs> particularly it's... you're talking about the peas. I mean, I do feel having fresh ingredients is so important mm-hmm. and I do feel sad that I can only ever use frozen peas I here. But yeah. I, I do keep an eye out. And look, I'm going down to Tassie after Christmas, so that's also somewhere that I can get access to some beautiful fresh ingredients. You'll be able to do beautiful cooking down there. I can. I, yeah. My kitchen's not with me, unfortunately, but I'm there and there's lots of ingredients. My my good friend Andrew Horgan taught me that all you need to cook well is a good heat source. That's it. Yeah, really? That's all you need. And you do also and need your ingredients, ingredients, of course. Of course. <laughs> your ingredients, but, you know, you don't need a really special kitchen. No, I agree. I agree. Just and often I've sauce. done some of the best cooking in some really, really difficult yeah. conditions, so yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. Okay, going out tonight with Paddy Pravo, Pansiero Stupendo. Thank you, Rosie. Thanks, Rita. <laughs>